0: Welcome to the Parenting Balance Podcast. My name is Kelly Williams. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and an ADHD parenting expert by experience. I'm here with my partner. Hi, I'm Teresa Van Pelt.
1: I'm a licensed mental health counselor and anxiety parenting expert by experience. And for the past 10 years, Kelly and I have had a family practice in Florida. This podcast is for parents who want to really understand what's going on with ADHD and anxiety so you can ditch the chaos and feel confident and happy again. Kevin Astle is a family law attorney specializing in divorce, elder law, and paternity in the Tampa, Florida area. He has over 20 years of experience and has represented over 1,000 individuals during his career. He's joining us today to talk about common legal issues that tend to come up in our practice. Thanks for joining us, Kevin.
2: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Hi Kevin, thanks for being here. Hello. So many, hello. I um I have read so many studies that talk about how our jails and detention centers are filled with people with undiagnosed ADHD and it really breaks my heart. Um and so, you know, I, I'm excited that you're here to help parents understand what their um you know, like it's, it's not the most pleasant of topics to think about your child's potential for getting into trouble. But, you know, if there are things that we can be talking to our kids about, should they have a legal encounter, um, you know, that that would be really good to know. Um, you know, because when when our kids are impulsive early on, they tend to get labeled. They get labeled as the bad kid. And it's not, you know, it's not fair and um, but but it happens, you know.
2: Right.
0: So since we're aware
1: of the statistics, um, we're hoping that you have some information that can be used to guide parents when they're talking to their children about law enforcement. Specifically, like what should parents tell their child to say if they're stopped by law enforcement?
2: Well, so let's start with the basics and the basics are you have a right to remain silent in this country. You have that constitutional protection. That's both at the federal level and at the state constitutional level. The problem is, is that most people don't understand their rights in order to assert them. Most people think that if they're stopped by law enforcement, they must answer or they can be compelled to answer. That is not true basically uh, I, I, the answer that i'll give is just as little as possible if if you know if you're stopped for speeding you know if a cop says something to you like do you know why i've stopped you just say no if he says you know do you know how fast you were going if you say well you know i, I had my cruise control at 73 and the speed limit at 70 you have just admitted and consented to the fact that you were speeding and you're getting ready to get a citation um so law enforcement is usually quite adept at asking questions in a way that sound, you know, innocuous and and very nice, but really is inclined to either garner either a citation or an arrest and eventually a conviction. So the best case scenario is to give yes or no answers if you can. Or otherwise, if you must speak, then say as little as possible and just give short answers. Otherwise, every statement that you say, everything will be used against that child or that individual. Uh, in an eventual prosecution. So less is better.
0: You know, so it's so interesting, Kevin, because, you know, this problem of impulsivity, (laughs) um, it often manifests itself in, in a verbal way. And so kids with ADHD tend to find themselves in a difficult situation where they are um, they feel like they've done something wrong, even if they haven't actually. And just by virtue of a of a person in uniform standing in front of them is enough to make them think they've done something wrong, and then start trying to defend themselves. Like the the kind of impulsive words start coming out of the mouth. Is and I've definitely seen lots of situations where um, number one, the ch- the the child, you know, then they in. After they're out of the crisis, whatever it is, they turn around and say to their parents, I really didn't do that, or I didn't mean that, or I didn't, you know, all these things. And it's really hard to, um, to get down to the truth of it. Is there, is there in any way a remedy for, like, if your child is diagnosed with ADHD and they said all this stuff in a legal encounter, is there a way to take that, you know, take the diagnosis to the court? in order to kind of argue that impulsivity and, and saying stuff you don't really mean is part of the diagnosis?
2: Um, I've not had that experience, but I'm going to go ahead and opine a guess here and say that it's not going to matter to a criminal judge. If we're talking about a crime, we're talking about just like speeding or, um, you know, didn't stop at a stop sign or stop. something that's a citation. That's that's something that doesn't have the ability to really impact your liberty. You're not going to go to jail for that except for in extreme circumstances. But in the situation of a crime, there's really no way to walk back what's said to law enforcement. Now you have body cams, stuff that's being recorded. There's, you know, a lot of um, agencies have had dash cams before that have both audio and video recording capabilities. So those things that are said, even if they're impulsive, that's unfortunately what's called a statement against interest. And those are used by prosecutors against that individual in a subsequent prosecution. So I can't believe that any type of ADHD uh, or, you know, I'll I'll just go to the the extreme and say like a Tourette's or something like that to where they're just saying things, sort of blurting things out is going to be beneficial. In fact, in the criminal setting, it's still going to be used against them.
0: Yeah, you know, and I think that's part of what for some of us parents is so frightening, you know. Um, Today and I, I don't know if this is true across across the country, but certainly in Florida now we have law enforcement officers in our schools as resource officers. So, do you feel like that situation can, I don't know, like increase the uh, the probability of a legal encounter for for some kids that?
2: Sure. I, I, I certainly do. I mean, law, our law enforcement in, in schools is sort of a newer thing. I mean, we had a resource officer when I was in high school, but that was I think we were only one of the only local high schools that had that. It was sort of a newer thing. Um, now it's it's very it's very common. Um, and um, they tend to have a little bit of a softer attitude because, again, their job is still the same. Their job is still to um, that whole um, thing we've always heard protect and serve. But if a crime is committed on the school property, their goal is still the same. It's still to gather information that's relevant to that investigation and a possible arrest and or conviction i've seen that actually be a problem and I've, I've had i've had some experience with that where kids in schools when they're faced with a vice principal or principal with the resource officer there they sort of dogpile on them and it's it's an additional level of coercion as, as i see it to get them to talk and to testify against themselves and to possibly incriminate themselves their rights are the same whether or not it's in a school setting or whether it's stopped on the side of the road so my my advice to say as little as possible is always the best advice. And as, since we're talking about teaching our children what's best to do, if they know that they've done something wrong, they, they have one of two courses of action they can take. They can either admit it and try to move on and hope that that helps them out, or they can say as little as possible and you know, parents can get a good lawyer and, and hopefully it goes away like that. Because a lot of times what I hear is, you know a resource officer and a principal will sort of good cop, bad cop, you know, forgive the cliche, but that's really what it is. And, you know, it's the whole, well, you know, if you cooperate and talk to us now, you know, it'll go easier on you. It'll go better on you. If it's something as simple as taking, you know, I don't know, taking a milk off of somebody's tray. I mean, that, that's that's not any grand larceny or anything. But if it's something as, as serious as maybe having a weapon in school or, you know, you had a weapon and you gave it to another child and and, and that became an issue. And the reason I'm using that as an example is because I've that's a case that I've worked on. Um, the more you say... It doesn't really matter. It's not going to get better for you. Um, I mean, criminal penalties are what criminal penalties are. If anything is a misdemeanor or less, then the judge can only do, you know, he can only do county jail if the child is an adult. If they're less than an adult, it would be juvenile detention. If it's a felony, depending on how old they are, they can be treated as and sentenced as an adult. In that situation, it is imperative that they say as little as possible.
1: It's scary and it's sad. And I, th- think that i mean i'm just going to kind of say it but i think that non-minority kids may have a little bit more going for them than kids who are in the minority because i think that there's this image of a criminal versus a kid who is made a mistake it's talking about like bringing up to the judge about um a diagnosis or treatment things like that you don't see that that is necessarily beneficial
2: on the front end no on the back end possibly and by that i mean if it's determined that they've committed a crime and either the state is offering some level of plea agreement or you know there's a sentence any, any judge that sentences any individual, whether they're a child or an adult, they can look at certain mitigating and/or aggravating circumstances. For example, if you do have any type of diagnosis that would have made it more difficult for them to rein in those impulses, that could possibly be used. For example, if If the judge says, okay, well, part of your probation or part of your agreement or deal or your sentence is that you have to do group therapy, but you have a child with oppositional defiance disorder, you can't put that child in a group setting and have that be effective. That's where where it's been successful in the past, again, on the back end, not the front end, to talk about those diagnoses with, with the court and with the state and to let them know and maybe craft something that's a little bit more tailored to that individual child.
0: So what I, um, the situations that I see the most in my practice um, usually involve social media these days. And it's this, it's this matter of cyber bullying. And I don't know, Kevin, if you've had any cases like this, but, um, you know, a lot of times uh, kids, you know, any kid that's differently abled is uh, become, becomes a target. And one of the ways that uh, other kids are bullying kids is by creating a fake social media account in their name and then, um, you know, doing things on their behalf through this fake account. And, and then um, anyway, it, it has resulted in, in all kinds of really mind blowing <laughs> uh, things that I've heard about, you know? Um,
2: right. And, and, Well, what's interesting about that is that that's That's an excellent point. So I've I've done criminal defense work as long as I've done uh, uh, family law and the other areas. But 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, social media existed just as something for us to just put up pictures of our kids or our families or to connect. Now it's used so pervasively and by such a huge segment of the population and in large part by kids. Like you're saying, it's not just something they use for, you know, fun and games. I mean, there's a lot of identity theft going on and a lot of bullying and other activities that could, you know, put a child that's at risk and at further risk just by way of social media. It's it's rampant and it's it's a huge problem. Huge problem.
0: So, and, you know, a a lot of times in response to this kind of bullying is where the, uh, you know, the students that I've uh, been working with, that's where they have their legal encounter because they are, you know, getting in a fight or threatening another student because this cyber stuff is going on that adults can't see, okay, But then but then the student is acting out behaviorally in school that the adults can see. And it kind of results in this being blamed for um, something that was instigated behind everybody's back.
2: Right. One of the things that we need to counsel our children with, uh, I mean, with the advent of social media and again, how pervasive it is and how often it's used is to tell these children that what's put out there on the internet whether it's um instagram or facebook or whether it's a chat there's a record of that somewhere and once it's out there it can't be pulled back again there's no way to walk that back either and that is a level of evidence that will tend to be used against them um i mean law enforcement will simply subpoena a provider they'll subpoena a facebook or or whomever whatever uh, whatever is the utility itself or the app and they'll get that information so we have to counsel our children to be careful what they say i mean if you're not comfortable saying it to somebody's face i, I certainly wouldn't write it and put it out there on, on the internet because there's a permanency there that's an issue if you if, if i walk up to somebody and i say look i don't like you that's that's one thing i mean that's somebody that's that, that's heard that and that's one thing but putting that out there on the internet especially in context of certain conversations or arguments or fights like you said that could rise to the level of something that was threatening or possibly could be a terroristic threat. I mean, these days, especially with schools, it takes very little for these, um, these allegations to get really buffed up and uh, to just go just outrageous, just sideways.
0: It It is true. That is absolutely true. You know, it's hard to, our, our kids don't believe us. I think I can speak for many people when I say You know, I can talk to my own kids all day long until I'm blue in the face about the dangers of social media, the Internet, putting things out there. And it, it has zero effect on them actually being experimental and testing stuff out, you know. So a lot of kids, I think, can make mistakes that way. And even more so if you know, you, you're really impulsive. Right. Developmentally,
1: that's kind of where kids and teens are at anyway. You know, they don't really look at the big picture. It can't happen to me. But add on a diagnosis of like ADHD with the impulsivity that just compounds the problem.
0: It does. And it's so available. Right. I mean, right. You, um, I, it, it's, it's like it, it's really difficult I would love to say to my kids, okay, I'm going to eliminate all of your technology. <laughs> well, guess what? It's impossible because then they can't do their homework or, you know, all these things. So it's really tricky. I think it's, it's a really tricky problem of parenting in our time. Yeah, Absolutely. definitely. I agree. So
1: I want to change gears now, if that's okay. Is there anything sure. else you guys wanted to talk about about this? Okay, so this is more related to family law. Um, So this is something that Kelly and I get a lot or or too frequent. And um, when one parent feels that a child needs treatment and medication, maybe they've heard um, they've gotten that recommendation, but the other parent doesn't agree, what can parents do?
2: Well, so that could be a simple answer and it could be a complex answer. Let's start with the simple. As parents, we all hope that we can effectively co-parent with the other side, even if we're not together. Um, are we talking about in a divorce setting or are we talking about parents that are together and they don't agree?
1: Mostly, I something. would say it's more when they're divorced or separated, they're not together.
2: Okay. okay. So, so again, shared parental responsibility implies that both parents are fit they're proper, they're, they have the health and well-being of their uh, minor child or children at heart. They put that above their own needs and their own conveniences. So we would hope that parties can talk about that amongst themselves. When they can't, that's when they are either going to lawyer up if they haven't already, um, or they're going to involve other professionals. So my suggestion would be um, court is always, court or litigation should always be the last step unless it's an emergency. So um you can go to you can go to mediation you can mediate simple issues you don't have to mediate every issue but you can mediate that you can involve a parent coordinator which is a professional that has a mental health um, or social work background that is uh, employed to sort of mediate conflicts informally when they're needed sort of on an as needed basis they're usually paid a retainer and then they're there and for example you know, there's an issue tomorrow about, you know, the, the medication didn't go over to the other house, the other parent is refusing to give it. The, that issue can be submitted to the parent coordinator and that can either be done in person via Zoom or over the phone. And then the parent coordinator will talk to both parents and see if they can't broker an agreement. And if they can't, most parent coordinators with in their agreement with the parents have the ability to pull their own trigger and to make that decision and say, well, under the circumstances as I understand them, it's best that you know little Johnny gets the, gets the medication and sir, you're going to go ahead and give that to him. Otherwise, I'm going to have to issue a report to the court. And then the step past that would be filing a motion with the court and saying, hey, court, I, we need your intervention to uh, address this issue as quickly as possible.
0: I've worked with families where um, the visitation or the shared custody, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. The shared custody isn't equal. It's like you know, 60, 40, is that what you're yeah, talking about? Like, yeah, or even 70, 30, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's like uh mom has the, has the kids and during the school week and dad gets them one weekend a month or two weekends a month, but the entire rest of the time they're with mom. And, right. and then the mom is exhausted and frustrated because here she's coming with these, uh, you know this child that's having all these symptoms that could be helped by medication, but but the dad says absolutely not. I don't want you to give medicine. You know in Florida, you don't. Ha- Both parents don't have to agree. One parent can consent to a consent for treatment, which is kind of the form that you fill out, allowing your child to get medical treatment or mental health treatment, and. Uh, with certain medications, they don't have to be given every day either, right? So, if your child's on a stimulant for ADHD, you could just not give it on the t- at the time when the child goes over to the dads. So, antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications are a different story, though. Oh. But- Those are important. absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. not. In fact, stimulants are the only medicine really that you could could do this with. Um, But, you know, so is that right, Kevin? Is that like reasonable? Would that be a reasonable idea for a parent is just if the if the um, the ex-spouse or partner is so resistant to just kind of exclude them from the decision making process?
2: Well, you can't exclude them from the decision making process. One of the tenets of shared parental responsibility is that all what we call big ticket items, healthcare decisions, uh, moral upbringing religious upbringing educational decisions must be discussed with both parents there's a different level or a different kind of uh, shared parental responsibility called shared parental responsibility with ultimate decision making authority where either parties have agreed or a court has awarded one parent Uh, ultimate decision-making authority over one or more of those big ticket items. And since we're talking about medication, let's just say healthcare or medication decisions. But that doesn't mean that that parent gets to pull the trigger and decide without discussing it with the other parent. Shared parental responsibility does require that is still discussed with the other parent. If a stalemate is reached or a disagreement that cannot be resolved, the parent with ultimate decision-making authority can then proceed with their decision, what they feel is in the best interest of the children. Now that, I want to make sure that we're clear about something here. So what we're talking about is, we're, there's there's a separate sub-issue here that even if one parent has the ability to choose that and the parents disagree and the parent does make that decision because it's a single consent, that doesn't mean that a court is going to uphold that down the road. And that doesn't mean that the other parent, the disenfranchised one, is not still going to file a motion and say, hey, judge, even though she's allowed to do this and did this, I disagree with it and still ask for the court's intervention. So that's even if Florida is a single consent state and it is... Um, You still have to be careful with that. It just can't be a blind decision or a a carefree decision. It has to be made with, you know, great thought, great caution and discussion with the other parents. And again, if there's a disagreement, that parent has to make the decision whether or not they're going to do that unilaterally and make that decision because it could result in additional litigation.
1: And I know that you spoke about uh, a single consent state and dual consent states. Can you explain that a little bit? Because we have listeners all around. Um, and I know Florida, you said, is a single consent state, and that's consent to provide treatment, right? That's correct. Them so in
2: Florida, if you go to a doctor and it's just one parent with the child, the parent is going to have to file, the parent will file or will have to fill out a release and, you know, whatever the, the doctor's office makes it fill out. And as long as they sign that, the office will treat them. In a dual consent state, without both parents consenting to treatment in writing, um, the doctor's office or the provider will not provide that service based out of exposure and liability on their part from flowing from the laws of that particular state. Um, so Florida is not a dual consent state, it's a single consent state, but again, great care needs to be given to how that unilateral decision might be perceived by the other parent. And again, in a divorce scenario um, where if, if they don't agree, now if they do agree, but it's reluctant, or if they just say, well, listen, just do whatever you want to, um, you, know, you know, just go ahead and make the decision, you take him. I'm not gonna do it. You start, the parent's hand is forced at that point. You really can't do much what's there. But, you know, my inclination is always to provide any advice and counsel that keeps litigation from occurring. So, you know, trying to pull these things apart and trying to find out what is the core issue here is the core issue really that. The child needs the medication or not or is it more that one of the parent is still reeling from the lack of control or the betrayal that they feel you know pursuant to a divorce or one party's conduct there's a lot of sub issues here and you too as therapists i'm sure you're well aware of that and that's a little bit outside of the scope of what we're talking about but that is these are considerations that we have to think about when we represent when i represent my clients when you represent yours
1: yeah emotions don't make things clean do they Well, I think this was really helpful. Can you think of any other questions that um, you had, Kelly?
0: Uh, Only that if we have any listeners who would want to reach out to Kevin for his services, what is the best way for our listeners to contact you, Kevin?
2: Oh, thank you. Well, they can call my office. That's 813-279-6699. My website is www.mylawyerkevin.com. And if they just want to reach out and email me, all consultations are confidential. That means even if you have a question, it's, it stays with me and it's confidential pursuant to Florida bar rules. My email is kevin at mylawyerkevin.com. Nice. Yeah, awesome. thank
1: you. yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Kevin.
2: Thank you for having me. It was very informative and very interesting.
1: Yes, it was very helpful. We hope you're enjoying season two of the podcast where we're interviewing experts to create more understanding about how to work with our kids. If you have a request, we invite you to join our Parenting Balance podcast community on Facebook and let us know what you want to hear. Thank you for listening to the Parenting Balance podcast. To join our mailing list, go to parentingbalance.com podcast. When you join, you will be notified of upcoming live Q&As. You can help us plan future episodes. We'd love to hear comments and questions. You can reach us by email, hello at parentingbalance.com.
0: And if you found this information helpful, please share it with anyone else who can benefit and subscribe and give us a rating on your podcast platform. And until then, remember, different isn't wrong.